Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he, as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, if you haven't noticed, I, um, I'm South Asian. I grew up in a South Asian home. I know many of you say I'm white underneath because uh, I listen to heavy metal and we go out for Indian food. But the truth is, uh, <coughs> I am. And there was a number of, there was a number of years where um, my grandparents, um, my, my dad's parents, lived with us. And one of the things I noticed, I remember when, um, when Jen and I were starting to date, uh, or actually, I don't even know if we were yet, and I came home one day and my grandmother said, oh, somebody called for you. I said, well, who, who was it? She said, well, I wrote it on the pad. So I looked and I said, what is this? Hey, is this Jen? She said, uh, or is that Jeff? She's like, I don't know. Well, like, what? she's like, I don't know these North American names. I said, well, is it a boy or a girl? I mean, it's like, this really matters, right? Um, and then when we started dating, I remember she, she was sort of saying like, okay, are you going to get married? Are you going to get married? And those of you that are from like sort of non-North American cultures know how this works, right? Especially your grandparents. It's like, what, do you, what is dating? I don't even know what that is. And then after we got married, it's like, hey, when are you going to have kids? And I said, well, we want to have some time because she's like, we never did that. What is that? She didn't even understand. And then when you have kids, it's like, hey, when are they going to medical school? <laughs> uh, right? Like uh, this is because in a sense, like this is ultimate reality. In a sense, if you're from maybe a South Asian or a Middle Eastern culture, or any, many non-North American cultures, the idea of, um, you know, sort of self-actualization or to become a full human is to be married and to have children. And hopefully those children are doctors and lawyers. And I remember thinking, like, I couldn't, I was in marketing for many years. My grandmother didn't even understand what that was. Like, you're not a doctor. What is this job that you do, uh, right, for many years? But this is, like, what ultimate reality looks like in traditional cultures. Now, in, in, in 21st century Western culture, in many ways we've dismissed that and said, well, no, you don't need to be married. You don't need to have children to have um, sort of a fulfilling life. You can be a single person. Like being a single person is a legitimate way to live. Um, and yet, what's interesting about that is, even as someone who's single, there is this idea, this pressure, or this expectation that, well, you're with someone, right? or someone's chasing you, or you're chasing someone, um, and all of the love songs and movies, and, and it's actually interesting that most romantic comedies, right, are about singleness becoming attached to someone. They rarely are about marriage or what happens after that, uh, right? There's nothing that extends beyond that, because there's just this idea so that even if you're considered, well, you don't have to be married, but the idea that you would be single means you're free, means you're free to date whoever you want, means you're free to play the field, and so still, I think we can, we can uh, be honest about this, is that even if marriage is not considered anymore sort of ultimate reality, being with somebody is. That this unspoken belief that, well, there's no way to have a fulfilled life as a human if you are, quote, alone. And I think that's a question that we actually want to ask, you know. Is that true? 
Is it possible to have a fulfilled life as a human if you are not with someone, if someone's not chasing you, you're not chasing them, if you are not sexually active in some way with whoever you want to be, if you're not married or married and having kids or moving on to whatever the next life stage, whatever your, uh, your social media status says you are, is it possible to have a fulfilling life regardless of what social status is? We're in the middle of a series called Being Human. Today we're talking about what does it mean to be single as a human being? What does it mean to have a fulfilling life as a single person? And is it possible to do that? Now, even if you say out loud, you're like, well, of course, but ultimately underneath there are so many beliefs, whether from the culture or from the church. Like, let's be honest, in many ways, the church has held up marriage and children and family as ultimate reality as well. Or perhaps, if not culture or church, just even your own mind and your own ideas of what you think self-actualization means, what you think it means to be a fulfilled, complete human being. We did a survey with, uh, almost 90 of you filled out this survey, and one of the questions we asked is, is, if you're single, what would you say are three great advantages to being single, and what would you say are two great disadvantages to being single? And every person who was single who filled out that said the same thing in the advantage and disadvantage. The greatest advantage that was mentioned every single time was freedom, and the greatest disadvantage was loneliness. That's a picture of what does it mean. And, and if you're single, meaning maybe you are single and wanting that to change. Maybe you're single and you don't want that to change. Maybe you're single again, whether widowed or divorced, and you're thinking through, okay, what's next for me? Or do I want to be attached to someone again? Maybe you're dating, whatever life stage you're in. In fact, even if you're married, I think we want to understand this question, what does it mean to be a fulfilled human being? in whatever life stage I happen to find myself, whatever my social or relationship status is. And this week we're talking about singleness, and Dave next week is going to talk about marriage. And I want you to stay with me, because even if you're saying, well, I'm not single and I'm married, or, you know, I'm single but I'm hoping that to change, or I'm single and I'm dating and that may, may change at some point, um, I want you to stay with me because Jesus is going to drop a bomb on us on this, and I promise you, I promise you, it will change how every one of us in the room sees this. And in fact, it has to change how every one of us in the room sees it. So stay with me. The scriptures actually tell a story about marriage and singleness all the way through from the beginning to the end. And at the beginning, in the book of Genesis, which means beginnings, uh, a book we've gone back to many times in this series about what does it mean to be human, we find, interestingly, Genesis chapter 2, God, after creating the world, and it's interesting when you read it, every time he creates something, he says it's good. He creates the moon and the stars, and he says it's good, and he creates the land, and he says it's good, and he creates the animals, and he says it's good. And there's one thing he says that isn't good, man being alone. It's interesting. Everything else is good in creation, but he creates Adam, and he says, wait, this isn't good. He's alone. And so he creates Eve, his partner, and they are married at the beginning of the story. And God says, yes, this is good. Actually, that was when Adam and Eve said, this is good. And so here's, here's what's, just as we step back for a moment, I think we find marriage is not a civil union or a institution, although it is. I know what, when you know what I mean by that. But that somehow built in the fiber of the universe is this relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, which explains why so many people are married or want to be married even though it's failing at an epidemic rate. 
any other venture in life, if you said you got a 60% chance of failure, most people would say, ah, probably not. And yet, a couple of billion people watched a couple yesterday say, yep, let's do it. Why? And I think to say, okay, because you want to be married to this desire, whether you're a single person or a married person, the desire to be with someone is not because you're insecure and alone, or afraid of being alone. Now, that might be, but if that's the case, you'll still be insecure and afraid of being alone when you're married, okay? Because marriage doesn't solve that, right? But there is this desire in us, I think, to be joined with someone in intimacy and relationship. And the scriptures tell us that actually is built into the very fiber of the universe of how we began. There is something about that relationship. Now, what's interesting is, from that point, God plans to redeem and heal and change the world, and his plan is to do it through biological families. So he begins to choose people and individuals, and there's stories actually early on of husbands meeting wives and, you know, who's gonna, who am I going to marry and all of this stuff, right? It's, it's a bit of a messed up love story. It is in many ways. There's all these stories of families come together and then promises about through your children, the world will be blessed, right? In fact, that's the promise God gives Abraham. Through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. And so children become, and any of you that you know, you're from traditional sort of eight, uh, like cultures, you're like, yeah, yeah, children are a big deal. It's this idea that the family unit is going to be the way that the world is going to be healed. The family unit is the way human beings are going to flourish. We actually see that continue on in the Old Testament, but we also see it's messed up. Like there's all stories of husbands and wives fighting, of conflict, of people having multiple wives to the point Solomon has 700 wives and 200 concubines. Maybe he thought one of these women will like me, you know, like just thought, right? Like you see kings that the more power they have, all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're going to get married 10 times over. And you're like, this is messed up. And then you have seemingly good parents who do a really bad job, or good people who seemingly do a bad job of parenting and raise terrible kids, or good parents who have terrible kids, and they have terrible kids. And so you're seeing this pattern for human flourishing in the family seems to be there, and yet it doesn't seem to be working. It's the story as it unfolds. And so God, we know his plan to redeem the world. He sends his son into the world. And what is so interesting about this, Jesus comes as a human. And remember, we've been saying through this series that Jesus was not just God in the flesh, but he was the beginning of a new humanity. That in fact, as you and I are trying to figure out what does it mean to be human, we actually look at Jesus. In a sense, God was restarting the human race with Christ in a different way, virgin birth, like not like any other human. And yet, scriptures say, like us in every way, flesh and blood in every way, emotions, temptation, everything. And here's what we notice that is so different from the beginning of the story. This time, human beings come and, and Christ himself is alone. And God says, good. Right? The passage Dave read for us at the baptism of Jesus, which was really the beginning of his public life. Up to that point, people really didn't know much about him. He comes onto the scene by himself, and God says, you are my son whom I love. I am pleased with this. So now we see something new developing in the story of humanity. Marriage, good. Singleness, good. Jesus coming onto the scene to redeem the world as a single person. Now this would have been culturally stunning for his day and age. 
because as a 30-year-old man, you were expected at that point to have established yourself economically enough and have a good reputation in the town that you were in that a family would have betrothed their young daughter to you, maybe 15, 16, 17, that she was going to get married eventually, but this betrothal was like, okay, you're spoken for, and as she came of age, then, then you would be married. And so Jesus is not. And forever history's been trying to put a woman next to him because they can't imagine he would be fulfilled by himself, right? He must have dated somebody. He must have had a child with Mary Magdalene. Oh, it was one of those women. And yet we find Jesus, like culturally, he, he was friends with men and women. He had men and women disciples. He was friends with married people and single people. He seemed to not operate within the traditional cultural norms. And God says this is good. And he seemed to be quite fulfilled in that way. It was culturally stunning, but it's spiritually stunning as well. It means that Jesus was unfolding God's plan for redemption in a new way. No longer was marriage, in a sense, the foundation of the world for every human being, because suddenly the next human, the beginning of a new human race comes along, and he is single and celibate. So now all of a sudden we find, wait, singleness, celibacy, and having no children an equally legitimate way to live. Well, the story continues. As Jesus starts the church, about 20 years after his resurrection, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in the town of Corinth. Now, you have to understand Corinth, um, the Greek philosopher, playwright Aristophanes, had actually coined the phrase Corinthiazo, which meant to fornicate. This town, like this place had a reputation, okay? That, that's, that's what everybody in the place lived to the point that it, the town name became a verb for having sex with people you're not married to. So he's writing about all of this to the church in Corinth and look what he says. I wish that all of you were as I am, which is unmarried. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. You're married, I'm not. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than burn with passion. This is, stop here for a moment. Here we have like God saying at the beginning, oh, marriage is good. And Paul's like, well, okay, if you have to get married because you just can't keep your hands to yourself, fine, go ahead. Right? It's like a, it's a departure from where he's been in this whole, and the scriptures have been in this whole conversation. So stunning. Don't miss it. Then he goes on. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of his wife, how he can please his wife, which is what married men should be concerned with. But his interests are divided. Likewise, an unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now catch this trajectory. Genesis begins, marriage is good. Marriage is the foundation of the world. Children and biological family are the way God is going to redeem and heal the world. Jesus comes along unattached, single, celibate, saying, no, Jesus, God is actually going to change the world through this one man. And this man starts a movement, and that movement goes to the point, 20 years later, saying, you know what? You actually really don't need to be married. And in fact, not only is marriage good, singleness good, I'd actually argue in some cases, Paul says, singleness is even better. In a hypersexualized culture like his, like ours, this is just stunning language. 
And he says, he puts his finger on it. Why? It's freedom. It is. But it's freedom to do whatever God calls you to do. You don't need to worry about whether someone's going to come with you or whether they have a different idea of what you should be doing with your time. There's a freedom to actually pursue all that God has for you in life. And Paul says, that's why I kind of wish you were like me. But if you can't, okay, fine, get married. Again, stunning for that time and our time. And this is the trajectory of the story of human flourishing. How did it get to this? Because 20 years earlier, Jesus dropped a bomb. We, we, in our home group, we used to talk about dropping J-bombs. J-bomb is when you talk about Jesus around people who don't know about Jesus. We're always like, whoa, that's a bomb. But this is a different bomb, okay? This is a different J-bomb. Look at what Jesus says. And listen, this affects every one of us in the room. And this is, I believe, the core idea of what changed the trajectory of relationship status from the beginning of time to now. Look what Jesus says. There's a story, he's, he's like... Um, teaching and like everyone's trying to see him there's always crowds and thousands and thousands of people around him and he's teaching in one of these places now jesus and mother and brother came to see him but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd someone told him your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you he replied my brother my mother and brothers are those who hear god's word and put it into practice This is the bomb that Jesus drops on single people and married people alike. A good, self-respecting, holy Jewish man, when somebody said to him, your mother and brothers are outside, would have said, let me go get them, or open the door, or make way, they're coming in. Because in that culture, biological family was everything. And Jesus says something mind-blowing a statement and not just this statement but that redefined relationships in christ he says actually my brother and mothers are anyone who does the will of god he was redefining family no longer is family defined by who you're married to by whether you have children, and by those family units, immediate and extended family, and by blood relatives. In fact, he changes the whole thing. And this is one of the reasons they were so upset with Jesus, not just about this statement, but do you know what? When he talked to them about generosity, they were all generous to people within their own family. But he kept pushing the boundaries. He said, I don't, I don't just want you to be generous to people who you're related to. I want you to be generous to the poor, to everybody. They were all willing to help the sick that were in their own biological family, but they were not willing to go beyond that. They were all willing to eat and have parties and feasts with people who were in their immediate circle, but they were not willing to go beyond that, and Jesus was constantly pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. Why? Because the family unit is changing. And the Apostle Paul in the early church understood this, and that's why they said, actually, you know what? Marriage isn't the most important thing anymore because your biological family is not your first family any longer. It is the family of God. The church, the body of Christ, is the new family unit. And within that family is where God has given us the gift of finding intimacy in relationship and a purpose for life. 
catch that? That intimacy and relationship now is not primarily coming through marriage and purpose for life is not primarily coming through marriage and having children. I know many of us who got married or many of us hope to be married have had that idea that this will bring me ultimate fulfillment relationship-wise in terms of filling my need for intimacy and this will give me my purpose for life. And many people are getting unmarried because it didn't meet those needs. Because the primary expectation was, this person will fulfill all my needs for intimacy and will give me a sense of purpose if I can be married and have kids. And yet as many people, maybe even more, who got married and have kids are saying, what is this life all about? We missed it. Jesus said, that's not the primary pattern for human flourishing anymore. Yes, many people will get married and that's good, but that's not ultimately where the deepest sense of intimacy and purpose in life are going to come from. They're going to come from relationship with God in the family of God, that the church is a family. And you and I are meant to pursue and grow our relationships within the family of God. So for a single person who says, I, I want to be married one day, or maybe someone who's single, maybe you're same-sex attracted, and as you search the scriptures honestly, as I have done, and many people saying, okay, if I'm a same-sex attracted person, God actually is not going to lead me into marriage with someone of the same sex. What does that mean for me? Does that mean my hopes or my desires for fulfillment are, are going to be unmet? If you're a divorced person or a widowed person, you think, well, I'm not sure what to do next. Well, the question is, where am I going to find intimacy in relationship and purpose in life? Primarily, it is not going to be through a marriage relationship. Now, that may be for many of us, but that ultimately doesn't meet those deepest needs. And I believe why in many ways we have held up relationships and marriage and that as ultimate fulfillment is in part because the church has not functioned like a family. It's a place we go on Sundays. It's not a community in which we find intimacy and purpose. And yet it is the great gift that, everyone, that God has given to every one of us, no matter what our relationship status is. I want to just kind of turn the stage over a little bit to uh, someone in our, in our congregation who was willing to share their story of singleness and how this has worked itself out as their life in the body of Christ. So watch now. My name is Osama. Uh, I was born and raised in Egypt. I was born in Alexandria and uh, lived uh, 25 years of my life uh, in Egypt, in Cairo. I lived uh, in Toronto most of my life in Canada. Uh, I, um, my, my first daughter uh, was born uh, in 1996, Sabrina, and my second daughter, Julia, was born in the year 2000. Um, and shortly after Julia was born, uh, two, three years later in 2002, uh, I started being uh, separated. And then by 2006, I was officially divorced. Um, uh, now Sabrina is 21 years old. She's finishing university this year. Uh, Julia is turning 18 next month and she goes to university this year. So I've been single for 16 years now. The stage of, of life that I was going through was very confusing to me. Um, 
I didn't know what to do and I because I wasn't prepared uh, for, for the situation I, I found myself in um, and I went through the usual questions why me why now what did I do to deserve this and I went through the struggles you know, fighting with God is that uh, I wasn't expecting this to happen. I did everything right. Why am I here? And uh, I remember quite vividly uh, God's voice uh, to me telling me uh, mainly, do not be afraid. This sentence kept coming back through the Bible verses that I'm reading, through uh, his, his talking to me, through this uh, voice uh, in my head. And he was basically telling me, do not be afraid. And I was struggling with him. And that's how I knew it. It's not even coming from inside me. It's from him because I was afraid. I didn't know why I shouldn't be afraid. And yet it was coming back over and over again. Do not be afraid. And uh, God has shown me uh, how to run towards him, not to run away from him. And this is something I learned from him and... Uh, I think it's a very important lesson uh, to remember is that you keep your eyes on God, you keep going back to him, you keep going and even fighting with him if need be. He's a big boy, he can take it, but he wants you to go to him, ask him why am I going through this. He doesn't mind it, but don't run away from him because then you will never learn anything from what he was trying to teach you. The church was very helpful to me. Because uh, I remember when, when this divorce was happening, it was the same time also uh, that um, Upper Room was uh, moving out of, like being planted, moving out of Rexdale. And although we spent 10 years in Rexdale at one point, um, this was uh, again another time when, when God was showing me that he's being very faithful because there was a, a church, a new church that was being planted and uh, I was able to attend that, that church uh, from day one. What I noticed, and I've mentioned this many times uh, before, is that Upper Room was very uh, welcoming church. I always uh, think of Upper Room as being a family to me and I've mentioned this word family many, many times before because I wasn't treated as somebody who's an, an outcast, who's an outsider, or uh, somebody who has this stigma of being a divorced person uh, hanging on top of his head. The other thing that um, uh, God kind of answered uh, in a way when I was asking why me and why this and why did I have to go, what did I deserve to do this, uh, God started showing me that uh, the reason I'm going through this is that God can bless other people through me, that through sharing my experience with people who are going through the same um, uh, issues or, or same uh, um, conflict or the same um, process, is that I can share what God has done with me and to help them, to bless them with uh, my experience with him, to bless them with what God uh, taught me, to be uh, close to them uh, as other people who have been close to me to help me through the process. And uh, I remember uh, from uh, the Bible that the Bible is talking about Jesus, that Jesus himself was able to help people uh, because he was, uh, you know, he went through 
uh, expectations and temptation and so on. Uh, and this was God's answer to me is go help other people with what I've taught you and what kind of experience you've had with me. One of the things I've been doing is that I've been getting together with Christian single people who uh, are going through the same situations that I've been through, either they're widowed or um, uh, divorced or never been, never been married before, they're still single. Uh, we go out together as a group. Uh, you know, we, we go to uh, dinner and theater, movie, uh, potluck dinner, uh, camping, hiking, stuff like that. So I've been talking to them and connecting with them uh, for many years and we've been helping each other, kind of a support group really. And what I've been able to see is how uh, different people react differently to what it means to be single. Some people I found that they are uh, looking for a partner and they want to get married right away. They want to get uh, hooked up with somebody immediately almost. It's almost a rebound from their previous relationship, whatever that is. And um, some people find that uh, they're not complete unless they are connected to somebody. They are looking for that connection because it completes them. Uh, some people are uh, basically have decided that they will never get married. They are going to stay single for the rest of their lives for any for different kinds of reasons. Some people have committed to go on uh, mission trips or to serve the uh, serve the Lord more and spend more time um, uh, in their ministry, whatever that is. But for me, what I found is really that what I've been missing is to become whole again. I realized that uh, I cannot be married to somebody else just because I, I feel I need this somebody else to complete me or, or to, to make me whole. I cannot rely on another person to make me whole. And uh, I started asking God to make me whole on my own. So if I get married afterwards, um, it would be for the right reason, is to um, uh, connect with somebody else, to make her happy, to uh, be able to contribute to her life as much as uh, she can contribute to my life but not to make me whole because only God can do that and I don't need to be married to become whole uh, I need to be close to God to be a whole person you know when you think about the apostle Paul's encouragement to the church it would be easy to think oh well he's saying Oh, look, it's better if you're single because you have more time, right? And then you can, you can um, serve God that way. But I think the backdrop of that whole conversation comes from saying the wholeness that Osama talked about that is offered to us in Christ, it isn't just, well, married, marriage has some advantages and singleness has some advantages. And there, there's truth to that. And, and there's difficulty in both callings. There is difficulty. The difficulty is different but there is a burden in both. And the point is that God has actually given us to each other as a gift to be in relationship to one another, to be in the family where those who are married or those who are married and have children are a gift to those who don't have children or who aren't married, where those who are not married 
or do not have children are a gift to those that are, that there's a sense in which we're saying, no, my life, my relationship status is not my identity. My identity is I am a member of the body of Christ. I am a brother or sister of Jesus. I am a child of God, and God has given me a new family no matter what family I have. No matter what family I may have or may never have or no matter what family I have that I wish I didn't have. Right? I honestly think that even our understanding and what is happening with the epidemic levels of divorce is in part because we have not sought intimacy from one another in the body of Christ. And so what does that mean for us to actually learn to live out an identity as members of this family and not the church in general? That's why it's so important for a local church to be a family. Flesh and blood. God with skin on, in a sense, to each other. And so I want to ask you, just as we end here, to do a little bit of a diagnostic. And I'll invite the band to come up, and they're going to lead us in response. Which family is first in your life? And here's, a, here's just four questions I want you to reflect on. <clears throat> How diverse is my friendship circle? That's the first question. How diverse is my friendship circle? If you're a single person, are you only hanging out with people that are single? Or are you only hanging out with people that potentially might date you? Right? Are you only moving in those circles? Now, Osama talked about the need to support one another in common life stages. Yes, but is there a diversity of circles in my life? Am I pursuing intimacy and friendship with people that are not in my life stage, either age or relationship status? Is there a diversity in that? Because you know what? I need that. You need that in your life. If you're a married person or you're a married person with kids, are you only spending time with people that are in that stage of life? Now, I know there's lots of things that function to make it sort of, quote, natural to move in circles of people that are in the same life stage as you. I understand that. But if that's the only circles we are moving in, if you're a married person and you have kids and you don't know anybody, you don't have anybody in your home regularly who is not in your life stage, they need you. They are missing out on your love in their lives. We were not meant to make our families and the prospering of our own biological children the ultimate reality for us in our lives. That to become a, really an idol for us and saying, this is where all of my energy and all of my hope and all of my prayer is going. And maybe that's sometimes why we feel such epic disappointment when things don't work out in our marriage or with our children because we put it all in that. So how diverse is that circle? If you're in a home group, do we function like a family? Does your home group function like a family? Do you see them that way? Or are they people we can just kind of hang out with once a week? What does it mean to do life together, to have meals together, to carry one another's burdens, that you leave home group maybe with a weight some night with some, what something someone shared about what they're going through just like you would if it was your mother or your brother or your spouse who called you and said, this is what I'm dealing with that you'll be praying fervently in the same way. How open is your immediate family to, quote, outsiders? How strange would it be? Would the rest of your family give you funny looks if you invited somebody else who's not in your family to a birthday, to Christmas, on a holiday? Would that be like, you don't do that. This is only for family. How closed are we? How open are we to, quote, outsiders, people who are not flesh and blood, but our flesh and blood in the flesh and blood of Christ who has bound, bound us together. 
And then maybe this very simple question. In the last seven days, have I asked someone in my church family to pray for me for something I'm going through? I say seven days because I don't know about you, but every seven days is a crisis in my life. Right? There's stuff. And I know my default response is to just internalize and just take it on myself. I had a conversation with the elders this week about how it's not my go-to to actually involve them and say, guys, I'm going through this. Can you pray for me? Can you pray for me? We're like, well, what are we doing together? If I don't, like, what's in me that makes me just kind of go inside with it? What does it mean to reach out to one another and say, carry this with me like you're my flesh and blood? Carry this with me like family. And maybe the last question here is, which of these is most important for you right now? Which of those questions is most important for you to think more about right now? And what's something you can do about it? Friends, there's a cost, right, involved for every one of us if we're going to pursue this kind of intimacy and relationship. But this is the place, this church, I believe we're called to grow, to become more like a family. Every one of us has that gravitational impulse towards self, towards me, towards me and my. But what does it mean to say, well, there are children in this church that God may actually want me to play type of a parental role in, a relationship role in their lives, that I would take them on as if they were my own and pray for them and care for them. What does it mean to say that there are single people in this church family that I'm meant to be family for them? Maybe, maybe their family doesn't live close or maybe their relationship with their biological family is strained and difficult and it's not a safe place for them. What does it mean for our dinner table to be safe for them? It's a growth area for all of us because it fights every instinct within us. And yet this is the great gift of the church that God has given us to each other as single people and married people. You know, isn't it incredible that that, um, that priest yesterday with two billion people watching, talking about love in marriage, brought up a single guy and said, he's the one who's redefined love for the world. Isn't that incredible? That's the truth of what Jesus has done. And so I want to invite you to just sing. And the song says, you know, there's no one else for me, none but Jesus. But I don't want you to sing it in this way of like me in my private Jesus moment. But Jesus, this is your body. If every other family, you know, unit in my life is failing me, the body of Christ never fails. Individually, we fail each other all the time, but Jesus never fails through his body. So as we stand and sing together, let's just thank him for what he's given us.